Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, birthplace of DJ Khaled and the Manning Brothers. That's Peyton and Eli, for those of you who don't know football, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, birthplace of TV's Buck Rogers, actor Gil Gerard and the childhood home of Dallas Cowboys coach Jerry Jones. In 2006, Christopher Young was convicted of capital murder in the death of Hosh Patel, which occurred during attempted armed robbery of Mr. Patel's store in San Antonio, Texas. In spite of pleas for clemency from Mr. Patel's son, Mike Tesh, Young was executed at Huntsville, Texas, on Tuesday, July 17, 2018. Tonight, we're going to be talking about Mr. Young's case, and of course, we're a live show. Calls are always welcome. Our number, our phone number is 347-989-1171. And Michael, is Jerry Jones the coach, or is he the owner? He's the owner. Okay, this is how much I know about football. Because <laughs> I put coach, I thought he was coach. So, yeah, Dallas Cowboys I mean, owner. My cousin's a Cowboys fan. She's gonna she's gonna be very mad at me for getting that wrong. I'm a Steelers fan, so I mean, I'm not a big Jerry Jones person, but always supported the people who were successful from Arkansas. Mhm. He was actually born in Los Angeles, but they moved uh, they moved to Little Rock, uh, North Little Rock, in when he was about three. The amazing right. things you find out on Google. <laughs> of course. God love. That's the best thing in the world now. Everybody gets to say Google it, and there we go. We're good to go. <laughs> Dude, so. not even going to lie. Google Google's 90% of my show prep nowadays. Uh-huh. So. Well, how are you doing tonight after our, our busy night last night? I'm doing pretty good. I uh, had a nice, uh, relaxing day, so I'm definitely ready to uh, talk about Christopher Anthony Young and see what uh, what we can make of it. All right. Ready whenever you are. Okay. Well, let's get started at the beginning with Young. Uh, let's talk about uh, 
Hasmukel, I believe. Yes. Uh, and I'm not sure uh, how to pronounce his first name. He moved to the United States from India in the early 1970s. His wife and daughter stayed behind. Uh, his wife joined him a few years later. And then in 1982, their son, Mitesh, was born. Uh, they eventually settled in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, Mr. Patel had trained as an engineer in India, and he designed fire, uh, fire sprinkler systems. But when he moved to the United States, apparently none of his credentials w- were transferable or, or did him any good. And so he ended up buying a convenience store and operating a convenience store and dry cleaners in San Antonio, I think, on the south side. Um, He was very well loved. He was known to let children who didn't have quite enough money, you know, purchase the things that they wanted. Uh, He gave nickels to the kids for candy. Um, He worked very hard. He worked seven days a week. And it wasn't until, you know, like the late 1990s that his family finally convinced him to close the store early on Sundays so that he could attend services at a Hindu temple. Um, he was a great father and, you know, moved here with the idea of giving his kids a better life. Well, I mean, definitely the American dream. That's why a lot of people who weren't born here come here. Mm-hmm. And uh, he actually had a a grandchild in 2004. I believe his first grandchild was born. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I definitely, uh, definitely interested in seeing what happens with him as far as this goes because, you know, he he wasn't the last person executed, but he he's a pretty. He's uh, pretty far up there as far as people who uh, have been executed recently. He was just executed, what, about less than 10 days ago? Last Tuesday, yeah. 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 It looks like it wasn't, you know, obviously a lot of people still, this is new and fresh in the minds of, uh, in the minds of the people. Let's talk about Christopher Young, the man who was executed last Tuesday. Uh, what type of upbringing did he have? What, what type of early, you know, life did he have before he committed this crime? Well, in in the initial trial uh, testimony, um, he had a, a normal, idyllic childhood until the age of, I think, eight when his father was murdered. His mother and father had never married. And he had spent the day with his kids at a Martin Luther King parade event in San Antonio. And he had dropped the the children off with their grandmother, I believe, because they were living with their grandmother. And then he left, and a few hours later, they were notified that he was murdered. Um, Oh, wow. One of his... Yeah, one of his sisters, apparently uh, the mother's husband uh, raped her and and she was raped uh, later on. And I think that's when they found out she was pregnant with the 
stepfather's child. And those things were apparently events in his young life that he never got over. And he lost interest in school, started hanging out with a rough crowd, uh, quit school when he was told he would have to repeat a grade, and uh, began just kind of living life on the edge. Now, in the later habeas proceeding, there were some affidavits submitted. Apparently, his family, his mother, aunts, uncles, cousins, were affiliated with the Bloods gang in San Antonio. And he had joined that gang at about age eight and started selling drugs at age 13. Right, right. So, so there there are, there's a, down a one dark version side. and then a very dark version of of his, you know, his life. I mean, in, and he was exposed to a lot of violence from a young age, even prior to his father's murder. Right. Based on the testimony right. and affidavits. Um, so, so that was his life. November, right. So on November 21st of 2004, he, what happened there? Um, that morning around 8... 45, a young lady, I'm not going to mention her name, I'm not going to say her name, um, was in her apartment with her three daughters, who were quite young. There was a knock at the door, and she thought it was her sister, so she went and opened the door and found Christopher Anthony Young standing out, outside her door with a uh, handgun. And he made, pushed his way into the apartment, demanded money. She gave him the $28 that she had in her purse. He told her, you're going to have to give me more. And then in an efficiency apartment, he sexually assaulted her twice in front of her children. Oh, dang on. He wanted, he wanted to leave when he decided it was time for him to leave. He demanded that she go with him. She said, no, I'm not leaving my children. And he said, you, you've done it before. And then he went to each of the children, kissed them on the cheek, and told them, your mommy will be back. They left. They got into, they got into the woman's uh, Mazda protege. It was red. And they uh, were driving out of the apartment complex. Young decided he needed to drive, so she stopped the car, and he told her, you know, if if she tried to get away without him, he was going to go back and kill her kids. He told her to climb over into the passenger seat, but he had left the passenger door open. So while he was getting into the driver's seat, she jumped out of the car and ran to her cousin, who was outside in, in a nearby, you know, outside a nearby apartment. And Young took off in her car. He went a few blocks to Mr. Patel's store, and at 9.37 a.m., he entered the store, hiding something in his left pocket, 
Uh, there's audio and video surveillance of this uh, from the store's cameras. And it shows Young going up to Patel, who was working in the back of the store, uh, asking him a question about dry cleaning, and then forcing him at gunpoint back to the front of the store behind the counter to the cash register. And then Young is heard demanding money and uh, telling Patel, I'm not playing, give me the money, shows Young firing several times at Mr. Patel. Um, Mr. Patel was able to sound the, to hit a panic button for the alarm and sound the alarm. And a witness outside the store saw Young leaning over the counter and firing at Mr. Patel, who was shot in the chest and who died of his wounds. Young left the store, got into the protege, went and picked up a prostitute, and then went to a crack house. And he was caught at 11 o'clock that morning when police found the stolen car parked outside the crack house, uh, smoking crack with a prostitute. Damn. I mean, this and sexual assault to capital murder. Correct. This went from Um, 30 years cop to death real quick. Correct. Correct. And, um... Yeah. I mean, it it is. It's, um... You know, I still, as I was reading it, I was like, I, you know, this person, not just Mr. Patel, but the young woman, I mean, her kids are are never going to recover from that. Absolutely and if not. she hadn't, a PTSD. It, if she hadn't escaped from him, who knows what would have happened mm-hmm. to her. Exactly. I mean, it's mind-blowing. And, I mean, you look, and is there any evidence as far as you said he was picked up smoking a crack rock with a uh, prostitute? Is there any evidence that this was done in, like, a drug-filled, like, type of deal? Or was he sober? The the night before, he had attacked his ex-girlfriend who had just had a baby from him in September um, because she had ended their relationship. And she, he stole her car, purse, wallet, and cell phone. Uh, he claimed to have been up all night drinking and smoking marijuana, and then he claimed that he smoked crack that morning. But right. this, this really goes beyond being on drugs. He was a blood, a member of a gang. He idolized one of his cousins who'd been shot. He idolized that gang lifestyle. So I'm thinking, you know, the guy really didn't care about himself or anyone else. Right. More than just drugs. This is insane. I mean, honestly. Yeah. 
I, I don't I don't even understand just wow. That's all I can say about that is just wow. I mm-hmm. I don't understand it. I, and I probably never will in that case. Uh just wow. <laughs> yeah. That's all I yeah. can say about that. I mean and then I mean it sounds like he was uh picked up in fairly short order. From, yeah, within uh, an hour and a half. Okay. Of leaving so, the store. So he was found uh, with the, you said he was found because of the vehicle. Did they know right off the top right there that he was connected to this murder they were finding? Well, um, they knew the vehicle was connected because it matched a description given by one of the witnesses who it was a red Mazda protege, and it had on the license plate, one of the numbers was a W. But that was all the witness was able to get. But, you know, this was probably the patrol unit who's in that area all the time, and they know which houses are the correct houses and which houses are the, you know, model citizens. And so because it was outside this crack house or in the yard of the crack house, it's not real clear from the, the opinions um, as far as the proximity between the car and the crack house. But they apparently went into the crack house and rousted everybody. Young resisted, and they brought him in. They arrested him. And right. uh, he matched the, the witnesses were also to give a, to be able to give a description that he was wearing a black T-shirt and light-colored shorts. And Young in the crack house was wearing a black T-shirt and light-colored shorts. Um, so they collected evidence from him, and and his uh, participation in the murder was confirmed when Mr. Patel's blood was found on one of his socks. Right. So he sounds like a guy who would be pretty proud of what he did, you know, idolizing you know, and being living this gang lifestyle, did he ever try to deny the murder? He neither he neither confessed nor really denied. Um, I think his angle was to claim that he he never went in there to rob the store, and that he doesn't know how it happened. It it just happened. Um. And so his, part of his, I, I'm not really, I'm not really hundred percent sure. His defense basically argued that the video, you couldn't understand anything being said. Uh, so there really wasn't any dialogue to indicate a robbery and he didn't get any money. So there wasn't any evidence of a robbery. But in this case, He's not on trial. But it's on video and you can see you you know, if if you're in if you're in a convenience store and you pull a gun on the clerk and you point it at the clerk, the logical you know, if that's on video, the logical presumption is you are robbing the clerk. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so and this again, this entire thing was caught on video. 
there were a couple of times when uh, apparently the area behind or at the cash register wasn't was in a blind spot. And so at the cash register, you really couldn't see what was being done. But there was a point when Young went to the cash register and then came out and left the store. So he probably got a couple of bucks, a few bucks, sent them to buy the prostitute and the crack. So he doesn't necessarily deny he committed the murder because, let's be honest, the evidence, all you have to do is look at the uh, video and understand basic math. A one plus one equals two. There you go. Well, you see, this was one of those things that um, a friend of mine used to call stupid defense tricks. Basically... He didn't confess, but he didn't exactly deny. And his trial counsel's argument was you couldn't hear him trying to rob the store, and he never got any money, so he wasn't trying to rob the store, and therefore it was just an unfortunate shooting and not a robbery gone bad. But again, the video, you can't deny on the video that it's a robbery. And the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals in in his direct appeal actually said, you know, the video's got several instances of assaultive conduct, which are a hallmark of armed robbery, even without the audio. Right. I mean, look at it, looking at it this way, murder's murder. Once again, the robbery should be secondary. He still murdered the dude. So why well, are we arguing about the robbery? The, the thing is, if, if he wasn't committing an armed robbery or attempting to commit armed robbery, it's not capital murder. It's first-degree hey. murder. Hey. And first-degree so murder and is not eligible for the death penalty. Pardon? They were just trying to fight for his life at that point. They were, yeah, they were trying to reduce. They were trying to reduce his culpability so that he would not uh, be eligible for the death penalty. Okay. But again, the video, the video makes that impossible because you can't deny what's on the video. And they also could not, they didn't even try mistaken identity from the witnesses or had they tried that, the, you know, the blood from the victim on his sock would have put that particular argument, Mm -hmm. you know, that would have, that would not have flown with the blood on his sock. And he had right. gunshot residue on his hands and gunshot residue on the steering wheel of the stolen car. And the victim of the sexual assault identified him. Uh, so it was uh, a pretty a, a pretty open and shut case. Yeah, I mean, they're not fighting the murder. They're just fighting, hey, he didn't mean to kill the guy. It just kind of happened. Correct. Well, I don't know if they were necessarily – in later years, Anthony Young claimed that um, 
he shot Mr. Patel because when he was reaching for the panic button that he thought he was reaching for a gun. And he said that his girlfriend lied and said Patel did her wrong somehow. And he went over there to settle a score with Patel. And Mm -hmm. the really sad thing is Mr. Young and his family knew Mr. Patel because Mr. Patel had the neighborhood convenience store. He was in his own neighborhood. He wasn't somewhere across town with somebody he didn't know. Right. I mean, this seems pretty open shut to me, but let's go ahead and talk about the trial in this case as far as – Let's just get to the trial. The prosecution's case is open shut. I mean, all you need is that uh, surveillance video, correct? And that's what they built everything around. Correct. The surveillance video, the blood on the socks, and the gunshot residue on the uh, car and his hands and clothing. So how did they they tie everything together? Uh, Well, the, the jurors got to see and hear the video. And um, mm-hmm. I'm sure that they had somebody testify about the gunshot residue in the vehicle that he's observed getting into and driving away in immediately after the robbery. And also um, the blood on the sock. Right. Right. So they were able to, through this, they that's where they were able to... Uh, to be able to piece together that that's what happened? There was no piecing together. It was all on video. Right. As far as the robbery. But that's what they were using to, uh, that's what they used to. And like I said, the the blood on the sock is just, you know, icing on the cake. The gunshot residue on the vehicle and his hands and clothing, that's all icing on the cake. That all corroborates what you see in the video. Right, right. So, I mean, the defense's case, they're they're just going to say because there's no audio, you can't hear anything, I'm not going to uh, claim, or that's their whole case is, we're not going to say that yes or no, he didn't do it. We're going to say that, he did it. But it wasn't an armed robbery. robbery. It wasn't an armed, basically saying it wasn't an armed robbery. Um, now, okay. the the audio on, the, the audio was, I believe, and I have not personally firsthand watched the video or heard the audio, but as I understood it when I read the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals opinion, it was, at some points, not intelligible, but there were points that were loud and clear. Uh, Young's statements to Mr. Patel came through loud and clear because the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals was able to quote them verbatim. And so uh, there may have been, you know, there may have been instances where uh, once the alarm went off, you couldn't hear anything anybody was saying, but you could you could get enough to know it was a robbery. I mean, Young's statement 
after he forces Mr. Patel to the counter at gunpoint was, all right, give up the money. I'm not playing. I'm not effing playing. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I mean, and that's exactly what it sounds Pat- like is robbery. He, Young fired a shot at Patel, and uh, who was out of view behind the cash register. Young yelled, you be effing up. I'm not playing. Give it up. Right. I mean, so, it's easy to make him, make that, him you know, that's to what he means. Correct. To think that that could mean anything other than robbery, I don't see how. So, let's be honest. How quickly does it take the jury to come back with the guilty verdict? Uh, they, uh, they were back with a guilty verdict within a few hours after they after closing arguments. His trial started, I believe, on the 30th of January, and he was convicted on, I think it was February 1st. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, uh, no, it happened, didn't... All this happened within fairly short order. Correct. This was in... Um, his trial was in 2006. The murder occurred... November 21st, 2004. And the right. trial started January of 2006. So about Which, 14 I mean, months. That's pretty quick for a murder trial. Mm-hmm. That's, that's pretty darn quick for a murder trial. So now we move into the penalty phase. Are they still saying, hey, you guys are wrong. You guys can't condemn this guy to die because it's still not a robbery. Or they well, no, they they really, once you're convicted, arguing reasonable doubt as to guilt is generally not effective with a jury. That's like telling them, okay, y'all are all idiots uh, for convicting him, but now, you know, don't be bigger idiots and sentence him to death. So generally, once guilt once guilt is decided, it's decided. Then they tried to humanize him by putting on family members who testified about uh, his childhood and his reaction to his father's murder, which I believe remains unsolved to this day, and his reaction to the uh, sister's rape and abuse by the stepfather. Um, And, you know, they tried to, like I said, humanize him and make the jury see that he had some redeeming qualities that that would save his life. Unfortunately, Mr. Young's background, the prosecution was able to refute a lot of that evidence. Um, Mm -hmm. he had, he had two assaults on his mother as a juvenile that resulted in serious injury. And then he also, uh, had assaulted his girlfriend in September of 2004 while she was pregnant with his child Mm -hmm. to stop the assault on her. She lied and told him her water had broken and she was going into labor. He had thrown her into a ditch. 
And then, again, the night before Patel's murder, he attacked the girlfriend because she'd ended their relationship and pulled her out of her car, beat her, and then stole her car, purse, wallet, and cell phone. Right. Um, then there are the circumstances of the murder. You have the murder on video and you have him leaving the the murder scene and going to pick up a prostitute and go to a crack house and smoke crack, Mm -hmm. which is an aggravating circumstance for most jurors because it was kind of a callous, you know, a callous, uh, and it, one of the he made a statement after the alarm went off, and he had shot probably fatally shot Mr. Patel. Uh, he can be heard on the tape said, "I said, give up the money, right? Right. Like this is your fault. You did this to yourself. Right. And then there was the incident." with the young lady and her three children less than an hour before the robbery of Mr. Patel. Mm-hmm. Okay, so tell me about that. I told you the, the young lady with the three kids, oh, the sexual assault, right, right. where he stole the car. Right, right, I apologize. That's okay. It It was traumatic, I know. <laughs> yes, yeah, I mean, and that's the thing about these things. It definitely is one of the craziest things I've ever heard in my life as far as how quickly this exploded from, you know, not to downgrade something like that, but, you know, a simple assault and, you know, Grand Theft Auto to murder. It's absolutely insane. So they end up recommending the death penalty, correct? That's what the uh, correct. That's what the penalty phase is for, correct? If I'm remembering, okay, that is correct. So they end up, they end up recommending the death penalty for this case, and they um, we then go to uh, the direct appeal after the judge grants what they said, correct? Correct. I believe in Texas, um, the way it's done is the jury passes the sentence, and then the judge basically makes it official. Okay. Um, Some states, the jury recommends, and the judge is the one who passes the sentence, and the judge has discretion Mm not to... to, uh, sentenced to death they at one time had discretion if the jury recommended life the judge could go the other way but that you can't do that anymore if the jury recommends life the judge is you know is bound to to uh sentence them to life okay just to you know even things out because of the way everything is correct correct Okay. And, you know, obviously how much is on the line in these cases. Yes. Okay. Okay. So we go from, hmm, 
we go from that to the direct appeal. So, like, it, it's mind-blowing to me a little bit here what's going on with this as far as how we keep going and how this guy doesn't yeah. just kind of be like that guy that we put to death not too long ago, we being the state of Arkansas, where he's just like, hey, I mean, at this point it's over. You know what I'm saying? Well, you know, due, part of due process is after the criminal trial, whether it's death penalty or not, you mm-hmm. a, a part of due, due process in the United States is you have a, a right of direct appeal, and that is to have a higher court look at your conviction, look at what happened at your trial, look at errors that may have happened at your trial, and decide whether or not your conviction and sentence are proper, mm-hmm. are legal. Okay. And so you, you have, in a death penalty case, it's an automatic direct appeal. Mm-hmm. And so the next stage would be going to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, and okay. they decide all criminal, all capital criminal cases. They have intermediate courts of appeal that decide non-capital cases, and then the Texas Court of Criminal Appeal, I believe, will review discre- on a discretionary basis some of those cases. But because mm-hmm. Young's was a death penalty, it is the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. And so... Mm-hmm. He raised several issues. Um, the first two he raised were the legal and factual sufficiency of the evidence that proved Young committed capital murder. Mm-hmm. And this was where the arguments came in. The tape was not was unintelligible. A detective admitted it was unintelligible. I wasn't there to rob the store. Asking about dry cleaning at the beginning proves I wasn't there to rob the store. You know, those are the kinds of, kinds of things my, my friend called stupid defense tricks. Right. And even though, you know, maybe not every word on that audio is intelligible, but enough of the words are intelligible enough, and the actions that you see on the video, it is armed robbery, and that's proven by the video. And that was where I was talking about a little bit earlier that the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals said assaultive conduct, the gravamen of robbery, is demonstrated on the surveillance video by Young holding Patel at gunpoint, forcing him behind the counter, demanding money, and firing shots at Patel when he didn't give up the money. Mm-hmm. So, um, of course, the Court of Criminal Appeals overruled those errors because they, they found that the evidence was sufficient, both legally and factually, to prove tempted armed robbery, which would make Young eligible for capital murder because Mr. Patel's death occurred in the course of the attempted armed robbery. Mm-hmm. And then um, Young also raised uh, challenges to the juror selection process 
uh, he alleged that there were three African-American jurors who were dismissed from the jury uh, veneer, which is the group that sits waiting to be chosen as jurors um, because of their race. His attorney raised the challenge to the the prosecutor uh, striking them. I think we talked about this. You have a challenge for cause, which would be something like uh, a person who says that they can't, under any circumstances, consider the death penalty. Okay. That they don't believe in it, and they would be challenged for cause. Um, somebody who has a felony record would be challenged for cause because they're not eligible to sit on a jury. Someone who doesn't have a good grasp of the English language would be challenged for cause. And there's no limit to how many for cause challenges a, a veneer might have. Uh-huh. Then the second method are called peremptory strikes. And each side only gets so many peremptory strikes. So you have to uh, use them very wisely because if you use more than you – if you use them all up and then you have a juror that you really can't have on that jury, you have no way of keeping that juror off the jury. Right. And so when the prosecutor exercised peremptory strikes on these three jurors, the defense challenged the strike because he believed that it was – for racial reasons. And um, basically the first juror was dismissed because a uh, statement that she had made on a jury questionnaire where she said she couldn't, was unsure if she could render a fair verdict because Young reminded her of her sons. So that wasn't because of her race. It was that, you know, she felt she couldn't render a fair verdict. Right. Uh, a second juror was dismissed because she participated in outreach ministries through her church. And although she wasn't one of the people in the outreach ministry group that goes into prisons and jails, she um, was a, a member of the outreach ministries, which are very active in prisons and jails, with uh, trying to rehabilitate people and bring them into the church. Um, she had also failed to disclose a conviction in North Carolina that her daughter had for larceny, which uh-huh. is more problematic than the outreach ministry participation. And then the third juror was dismissed because she had stated that her husband and son believed that they had been subjected to racial profiling in Bear County. Okay. And um, she'd also served on a prior criminal jury that acquitted the defendant. And she had expressed a desire to go into jails and prisons to preach. She was a, a I guess, a certified evangelical preacher. And finally, she had expressed in a questionnaire her strong opposition to capital punishment and stated several times that she could not participate in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
you know, at the trial, the prosecutor offered his reasons for striking the jurors. And then it became, uh, it was up to Young's attorney to rebut those reasons. And because he was unable to rebut those reasons, the Court of Criminal Appeals found that, you know, the reasons that the prosecutor offered were reasonable and were not race-related, and therefore there was no, uh, there was no constitutional error in those three individuals being struck from the jury. Uh-huh. And then um, the next issue uh, was Young had tried to suppress evidence that was seized when he was arrested at the crack house and tried to suppress some of the statements that were made, that he made, because he was arrested without a valid warrant. And um, those challenges were overruled. Um, And it's pretty technical. (laughs) Basically, he was in a crack house, and he was resisting. They had probable cause to arrest him without a warrant. Right. And when you're on when you're in custody, they can access your clothes without a warrant. So um, it's it's I, I boiled it down I boiled it down to a paragraph, but the opinion I think it's like two pages of citing the law and citing the the precedents and I just kind of. This is what they finally came down to. Mm-hmm. You can you don't have they don't have to always have a warrant to arrest you. You can be arrested on the basis of probable cause. And then okay. indicted for whatever crime, you know, they they prob- had probable cause to arrest you for. Um and it's just like, you know, you don't if you're in jail, you don't have an expectation of privacy. Mhm. With maybe, maybe in a bathroom, maybe you have an expectation, a slight expectation of privacy. So anything in your cell, they can go through it. Unless you mark it legal, they can go mm-hmm. through it. Right. So, um, <laughs> and then uh, Young's attorneys challenged the admission of a an identification photo taken at autopsy of Mr. Patel. And that one was also, that challenge was overruled. The uh, photograph wasn't particularly gruesome, and it was the subject of testimony not only from Mitesh Patel, Mr. Patel's son, but also from the medical examiner, Dr. Rulon. And then they also... um, Young had requested a jury charge on the lesser-included offense of murder. And the uh, Court of Criminal Appeals found that while he did, you can get a lesser-included charge in a capital murder case. Uh But uh, he didn't prove that the audio and what was depicted on the video were insufficient to prove 
capital murder in the course of an attempted armed robbery. Mm-hmm. And um, part of that was because he contradicted himself. He said the audio was unintell- unintelligible, but then argued that the beginning, when he asked about dry cleaning, was proof that he didn't intend to rob Patel. Mm-hmm. So uh, that one, you know, he, he was not entitled to a lesser included offense of murder in the jury charges. Um. And there, in viewing the video, there was no evidence to support a lesser-included offense because you see him entering the store, drawing a weapon, forcing Mr. Patel to the register at gunpoint, shooting Mr. Patel, going to the register, and leaving the store. And from all of that, without any audio, a rational trier of fact could uh, determine that Mr. Young was guilty of capital murder. Mhm. Yeah. So um, that was overruled, and then there was a challenge to uh, the the penalty phase that the evidence of future dangerousness was insufficient. But of course, the sexual assault at gunpoint, theft of the car, immediately prior to the attempted robbery and murder of Mr. Patel. And then disposing of the gun, picking up a prostitute to do drugs um, were sufficient with Mr. Young's history of violence against his mother and girlfriend were all sufficient to meet the future dangerousness Mm -hmm. uh, burden. So that um, that was overruled. And then Finally, um, let's see, they had uh, a shooting incident that Young had been involved in in May, and it was admitted in the penalty phase where he had seen a guy in a rival gang, told his girlfriend he was going to go shoot the guy, got, went and got his brother, got a gun, left, she hears gunshots, he comes back and he says he just, you know, he just exchanged gunfire with this rival gang member. Um, and police were called and Young was in possession of the weapon and there was gunshot residue on his hands. That admission, the admission as well as those two pieces of evidence was all sufficient, even though he had never been charged. It was all sufficient to support that within the context of future dangerousness in a capital murder penalty phase. And I think Mm -hmm. that's another misconception that people have. Um, And we talked about it with Rodney Reed where advocates for Reed say, well, he was never charged, he was never tried, he was never convicted of any of these other rapes, so they don't count. And that's not true. Well, I mean, um, in a penalty phase, it was because he was never tried. Correct. He was. Uh, he's. He's been indicted for all of them. He's just never been tried because he's been on death row. Um, but in a penalty phase, in a death penalty case, the state can present evidence of extraneous conduct or extraneous offenses, even if there is no 
conviction for those offenses if they meet certain criteria. And in this case, Young admitted to the girlfriend that he had fired at this other person. He was in possession of the gun. And he had gunshot residue on his hands because he was caught very quickly. Um, And then there was a second, um, during the testimony regarding the May night shooting incident, uh, the officer spontaneously volunteered that the gun was a stolen gun during his testimony, which he shouldn't have done. That was wrong. Um, but he had observed Young throwing the gun in the bushes, and he recovered it. And apparently on redirect from the prosecution's cross-examination of the officer, that's where the fact that the gun had also been stolen came into into play. Um, the officer was reprimanded by the judge, and the jury were instructed to disregard the statement. And the Court of Criminal Appeals found that there was nothing in the officer's statement or his testimony that in any way applied that Young had stolen the weapon or that he knew it was even stolen. And so the basically the the statement about it being a stolen firearm was what they would call harmless error. Mm-hmm. And then the final um, challenge was that the court failed to give the instruction word for word as it appears in uh, the statute in Texas, which is Article 37.071, Section 2F3. The judge omitted part of that instruction on mitigation. Right. Um, And they they believe that that uh, deprived Mr. Young of a fair penalty uh, determination. And uh, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals also overruled that challenge because uh, they found that first Young's counsel didn't object to the charge that the court was going to give. And I think we've talked about this. The court literally meets with both attorneys or all four attorneys or however many attorneys are representing state and defense. And they go over the jury charges. And the state can offer charges they want read and the defense offers charges they want read. And they discuss it and it can take a whole day sometimes. It can take a couple of hours most of the time. And then once they all agree, then the judge reads the charges to the jury. And so mm-hmm. Young's counsel didn't object when the court said, this is the, this is the mitigation special issue instruction that I'm going to give. And the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals also found, because Young's jury unanimously found no sufficient mitigating circumstances warranting life in prison that the failure to give the statutory instruction word for word was not was a harm another harmless error. And there didn't there was nothing in the record to suggest that the jury uh was confused or had any question because they didn't send any questions out to the judge. Well 
what about mitigating evidence? How do we do that? What do we do? You know, those types of things. And I think the punishment phase was fairly quick as well. So that was, the direct appeal was not successful. And his, his conviction right. and sentence were both affirmed. So, let's go ahead and talk about the uh, federal habeas. What happened uh, in that area? Well, you missed state, uh, the state... Um, oh, the state post-conviction. I apologize. State post-conviction. Well, um, that relief on that was denied. Um, Texas doesn't... The Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, most of the time on uh, state post-conviction, they, the trial court submits lengthy conclusions and findings, and then the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals will just basically adopt those in a two- or three-paragraph order. And mm-hmm. so... Um, what I can determine from what's available online is that uh, Young raised 20 issues in his state post-conviction. And seven of those were procedurally barred because they should have been raised on direct appeal. Mm-hmm. And then basically they adopted the trial court findings and denied relief. So it's very quick, but I wanted to get it in there to show that he had that step in the process. Right, absolutely. Absolutely. He had every shot he could. So right. what, what big does happen in the federal habeas? Anything in the major? federal habeas, pardon? Anything major pardon? happen in that? Well, he, he he was denied relief. Uh, he did have and and the the Batson claims related to the jurors being dismissed. He did have a new angle of challenging those dismissals. He claimed that the. Uh, using a peremptory strike against a juror based on religious affiliation was a violation not only of his due process, but of the juror's religious freedom. Mm-hmm. And so um, that was that was one of his challenges, and that was a, a challenge that he would make a few more times over the course of his post-conviction challenges. But in the federal habeas claim, uh, it was found to be procedurally barred because that religious argument had never been made to the state trial court or to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. Right. And in federal habeas, especially after EDPA, you have to give the state courts a chance to fix the issues before you can get relief on them in federal court. So 
So I'm because trying. Young because Young didn't argue in, on the direct appeal, it was religion. And so the state court on direct appeal didn't have a chance to fix it. He didn't argue it in state post-conviction, so the state court had never had a chance to fix it. And then he raises it for the first time in the federal case. He's, you know, he's he's not going to be able to pursue that claim. He's not going to uh, succeed on that claim. Right, absolutely not. So, that makes, that um, makes and that applied to two of the jurors, the outreach ministries juror, and then the juror who was the ev- evangelical um, minister or preacher. Mm-hmm. That makes sense to me as far as that goes. Right. You're gonna so that you're, you're gonna want to try to uh, get rid of as much as you can. Wait, pardon? You're gonna try to get rid of as many claims as you can, correct? Well, they like I said, what they do, what a lot of these, um, a lot of these capital defense. Attorneys, if it doesn't work in state court, they try to go from a different angle in federal court. And they try to come up with a new argument, a new challenge, and new evidence. Thinking new evidence is always going to trump everything. And that's not necessarily how it works because sometimes, quote, new evidence isn't really, quote, new. Mm-hmm. It's just an angle that nobody had looked at before. So, the you know, the religious angle, because of their religious beliefs, that wasn't really new. Because in mm-hmm. the state court, in the prosecutor's reasoning, included religious. And his attorneys never argued religion as a basis. Right. So, um, and so that's, you know, basically you end up going to federal court and sometimes you're successful if you're creative enough and sometimes you're not successful and the claim is deemed to be procedurally barred and the federal court won't consider it. And sometimes they'll consider it and and say it and, you know, find that there's no merit. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, and I mean, in this case, it sounds like there is no merit. No. Um, Religion, a protection to people based on religion has not, Batson has not been extended to, you know, grant protection. Um, Mm -hmm. And this the the outreach ministry, the argument about outreach ministries, um, I had read somewhere that, you know, somebody like somebody who's part of the, what is the what is the uh, white supremacy church uh, process? Uh-huh. The Aryan nation. The Aryan Brotherhood. Well, the Aryan Brotherhood, but they have their own church. I can't remember the name of it. 
But if somebody uh, said, I'm, I'm a member of that church, a prosecutor trying a, you know, any defendant for any crime against any person of color, whether the defendant's a person of color or not, a person that's a member of, of a white supremacist church would not be considered uh, an acceptable juror. So outreach ministries, if they believe, you know, we, we should always show mercy to, uh, to people on, on trial or charged with crimes, they probably wouldn't make good jurors because they wouldn't be able to follow the law. They would want to follow their conscience. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not, I'm not criticizing that. Mm-hmm. But, um, uh, you know, they I, may have a hard time. I would so it's, agree with that. It's I would not a violation for... It's not a violation for a prosecutor to say, to, to strike a person if they're a member of a religious or, organization that may impede their ability to decide a case based on the evidence and testimony presented in court, mm-hmm. good or bad, for whatever reason. Okay. Well, Lisa, it's about halftime here. We went a little bit over, but it's about halftime. We're <laughs> going to go ahead and take a quick commercial break, and uh, we'll be right back with more clear and convincing about uh, this is a fascinating case, how quickly it just boils over. I know. It is. It is. I was – one of the things that I'll I'll say this real quick before we go – one of the things is mm-hmm. this happened very quickly. The murder is in 2004. 14 years later, he's executed. Right, right. And everybody knows things don't happen like that unless, I guess, unless you're in Texas. I mean, they got uh, there is a joke going around that they've got a uh, a fast. They've got an express to, lane. Uh, yeah, yeah. They've got an express lane, and you know, with DNA. That has been slowed a little bit mm-hmm. uh, because people like Reed and Swearingen and Skinner and uh, Robert Pruitt. But um, no, it's 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 still pretty fast. Yeah, definitely. Well, we'll be right back with the conclusion of Christopher Anthony Young here on Clear and Convincing. Are you looking for the best deals for your vaping needs and accessories? Then check out the guys at Sub Ohm Vapors. With daily specials on a wide selection of mods and juices, they will surely become your one-stop shop. Ray and the guys at Sub Ohm Vapors, located at 6929 JFK Boulevard, Suite C in North Little Rock, Arkansas, want to see you. Join them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, but more importantly, visit the store or call 501-392-6487. Sub Ohm Vapors. Vape it like you built it.
And we're back. Uh, yay, we're back. <laughs> I'm, well, I'm outside you- listening to the frogs. <laughs> nice, nice. So we left off at the federal habeas, correct? Yes. Okay. Um, he so, he was not successful. He offered a couple of other kind of novel arguments. Uh, one of which was that the jury instruction error. Um, he his attorneys argued that the jurors should have been instructed that if you can't agree, then he would be sentenced to life. And they should have been told that. Right. I mean, reasonably so, I guess. Well, no. <laughs> it's really not. You don't You don't encourage a jury to have a breakdown in their deliberative process. Instructions are meant okay. to help them deliberate and follow the law. Right. And apply the facts and evidence at the trial to the case. Not to tell them, you know, this is this is how you can get a hung jury. Mm-hmm. And so right. that did not go over well either. Uh huh. I can imagine. I can imagine that. <laughs> so, and you know, once again, he his attorneys approached the issue in a way that they had not used in state court. And so the issue was, again, procedurally barred because he hadn't made those arguments in state court, and therefore the state court was not able to make a determination based on those arguments or on the evidence he was presenting in support of them. Mm-hmm. So uh, that issue was not decided in his favor either, and his federal habeas uh, Request was denied. Okay. So he then goes and tries to fight his way through the uh, through the clemency, correct, from there? Correct. I believe he, he didn't apply for clemency until, I believe, sometime after his death warrant had been issued. And uh, his mm-hmm. Fifth Circuit appeal, the... Federal denial was in 2015. Yeah, 2015, and the Fifth Circuit uh, affirmed that in 2017. And then right. he would have, and the U.S. Supreme Court denied his writ. And so he had a death warrant signed. It was set in Texas. They go back to the trial court and request that the trial court set an execution date. Um, uh-huh. his, uh, excuse me. His appellate attorneys did try to file a writ at the U.S. Supreme Court on the religious issue, uh-huh. which was denied. Uh, the writ was denied. They didn't hear it. And then he okay. uh, requested clemency which in Texas, clemency goes to the Texas Board of Pardon and Paroles, and they make a recommendation as to whether the governor should grant clemency or deny it. 
mm-hmm. and they did uh they recommended denial. Um, right. That led to another 11th hour controversy of racial discrimination at the Board of Pardons and Parole because I don't know if you remember early this year in February a man by the name of Thomas Whitaker was set to be executed for the uh, hired murder of his mother brother and father his father survived the attempt um, and Whitaker was caught and tried. The gunman in his case was sentenced to life in prison, and Whitaker was sentenced to death. So the argument was made that it wasn't fair that the gunman who did the killing wasn't also sentenced to death, and that Whitaker was when he didn't kill anybody. And uh, okay. it was actually... The, the talk about that that made me want to do an episode on murders for hire okay. to explain why the person who arranges the murder is actually more culpable than the person who carries it out, at least right. in my opinion. Who tells the who tells the killer where to find the victim, when to find the right. victim. So, um, you know, that in my book is even worse than the killer. Right. But um, we we ended up not, you know, not doing it. But there was Mr. Whitaker was white. Uh, Christopher Young was African American. So there's a there was a claim of racial disparity. Um, and oh, the wow. circumstances of the two clemencies were. Very similar. I mean, Kent Whitaker, Thomas Whitaker's father, was the one who pushed for clemency. And he had been against the death penalty for his son, even at the trial. Uh Uh-huh. Mitesh Patel was Hush Patel's son. And he came to a point where he was able to forgive Christopher Young and maybe felt that that's what his father would have wanted him to do. And so he supported clemency for Christopher Young. Mm -hmm. But uh, the Board of Pardons and Paroles didn't grant it. Um, The legal action filed challenging that was was not a type of action that would Stay the execution. Right. So the execution went forward in spite of that legal action. Uh, we may see that the attorneys are going to uh, pursue it anyway. I don't know whether they can. Even after the death? After the execution. Because it deals with a, a, a claim of racial disparity they may uh-huh. be able to pursue it. Um, I hadn't researched it because it's, it was filed, I think, two days before the execution. Uh-huh. So, so it was their um, last-minute, last-ditch effort. And, and it, it's what's called an extraordinary, uh, an extraordinary petition 
Uh-huh. So it's not it's not part of a process that would have entitled Mr. Young to a stay of execution. Okay. And because it, and, it challenges no. the Board of Pardons and Parole, it's not, you know, it's not something that is going to, it's an administrative almost challenge. Right. So they may right. pursue it, so, they may not. I don't know. Uh, I'll I'll certainly uh, keep an eye on the news. Mm-hmm. And if he, uh, if they pursue it to see what is said... Of course, you know, the Board of Pardons and Paroles, they don't they don't give a reason. They didn't give a reason why they granted Bart Whitaker's request. And they don't necessarily give a reason why they denied Christopher Young's. It's just a matter of them saying granted or not. Right, right. So obviously, you know, a little over a week or a week ago tomorrow he was they ended Tonight. up carrying out Sentence, correct? Oh, yeah, it was a week ago tonight. So, I mean, but this doesn't sound like it's over by a long shot. Um, again, you know, at this stage, it's hard to tell whether it's going to be over or not. Um, of course, the allegation of racial racial disparity at the uh, board of Pardons and Paroles, it, that is an action that could technically probably be carried out to uh, challenge how they make their decisions and ensure that in the future, if there was racial disparity, that it doesn't happen again. Right. Absolutely. But, I mean, in this case, obviously, there's nothing that can be done for... Uh, for young, no, I it it wouldn't, right. and I don't, um, you know, I don't necessarily think that he would have ended up being granted clemency. Mm-hmm. Even if they had successfully, you know, if they got the part board of pardon and paroles out there, and the members said no, we based our decision on the facts of his crime, what he did before his gang affiliation selling drugs violence with his mother and his girlfriend i mean you know those all those factors are are things that they would consider right and with thomas whitaker he was greedy and he was manipulative And he'd been lying to his family for a long time prior to the murders. But other than that, he led what seemed to be an exemplary life. Right, right. And then, I mean, yeah. He thought his father was worth a lot, a lot of money, and he wanted it. Right. So, you know, he he thought of the easy way is to kill mom, dad, and brother. Mm-hmm. Right. So. Well, Lisa, it looks like we're pretty much uh, case closed on this one. Obviously, like I said, a little over a week ago, or a week ago tonight, he was put to, uh, he was put to death by the state of Texas. 
And nothing really can be done for him, but, you know, it will be interesting to follow that uh, claim of racial bias as far as that goes. But uh, yeah. go ahead and let everybody know what the case is for next week. We're going to be talking about Hank Skinner next week. Mm-hmm. Really? Um, That's an interesting yeah. thing. Uh, Henry Skinner in 1993 – his girlfriend and her two sons, Elwin and Randy, were murdered in their home. Uh, mm-hmm. Skinner was in the home at the time of the murders, but claimed that he was uh, comatose from mixing alcohol and codeine and claimed he was allergic to codeine. Oh, wow. And um, so... It's an interesting case. He's uh, he's gone up to the Supreme Court on uh, DNA testing and challenged Texas's DNA testing law. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's had a few rounds of DNA testing. And so we're going to talk about that. Right. Well, that definitely looks like a great episode. I can't wait to be back here next week for it. And, uh, you know... Definitely encourage everybody to tune in every week, every Tuesday night, as we usually do these. Obviously, on Tuesday night, this week we had the bonus episode on uh, on a Monday night. But definitely encourage everybody to call, come in, uh, call in, questions or participate, or excuse me, questions are you know encouraged. As far as these things go, if you have any questions, feel free to call it in at three four seven. Nine eight nine one one seven one. But uh, Lisa, go ahead and get us out of here. All right. I want to thank everyone for listening to Clearing Convincing tonight with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and you want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. Join us next week for episode 15, State of Texas versus Henry Skinner. Skinner was con- convicted and sentenced to death for the 1993 murders of his girlfriend, Twyla Busby, and her sons, Elwin Cater and Randy Busby. The defense has claimed that the results of post-conviction DNA testing have provided exculpatory results, and the State of Texas disputes that claim. Join us on Tuesday, July 31st, 2018 at 8 o'clock Central for a discussion of the murders, the evidence, and the post-conviction claims made by Hank Skinner. Everybody have a great week, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Good night, everybody.